what did you have for breakfast today? I had a bowl of cereal about half an hour ago. Okay. What cereal? Just right. Just right. Yeah. Mm, delish. Absolutely <laughs> delicious. <laughs> Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. To learn more about our array of guests, just head to neural.com slash podcast. In this episode, I have for you Adam Stone. Adam is an entrepreneur, founder of Speed Lancer, and a serial globetrotter, the son of our former guest, Adrian Stone. Adam has been running businesses in the e-commerce and telecom space since the very early age of 12 years old. He's awarded as Australia's Student Entrepreneur of the Year in 2013 by the Entrepreneurs' Organisation and making the Forbes Asia 30 Under 30 list really speak to his constant desire to build both businesses and a lifestyle that he enjoys. Speedlancer is currently the world's fastest freelance marketplace, at least from what I could find online, it is undoubtedly the fastest. As a regular user of Upwork to support both our business infrastructure at Neural and our clients, I can say with absolute assurance that communities of curated professionals like Speedlancer is almost certainly where the future of work will be. This was a great episode, unpacking the psyche of a young entrepreneur and how businesses that are decentralized like Speedlancer can work. In terms of key topics, we spoke about starting out as a young entrepreneur, his father, Adrian's influence, the hustle behind the scenes, advantages of freelancers over early hires for startups. We then got into distribution and pricing models uh, opposed to product market fit. We spoke about Speedlancer, its growth, customization and incentives. We spoke about remote work and decentralized businesses. And then finally, his advice for startups. Uh, I've got to thank Adrian for this introduction. It was a great chat. Uh, in terms of why you may enjoy it, I think anyone who is in the startup world and building businesses will rather enjoy this, as well as people wanting to build businesses around a lifestyle. You'd be fascinated by the way that Adam runs this business and how he doesn't really have to be tied down to one specific city or office. Uh, so building a mobile remote business will be one of the key topics in, in this interview. In terms of other episodes that you may enjoy on top of this, uh, Adrian Stone, obviously episode 2 and 37, we got into VC finance and personal finance. And then Nathan Chan, who is the founder of Founder Magazine, which was episode 30, we spoke about some, I guess, similar topics and issues. So make sure you uh, go and check those out. The show notes, just head to our index at neural.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, as I say every week, subscribe on your podcast app. Just hit that button. Go on, subscribe, do it. Share with one of your friends. You can just share through Messenger. Uh, this will this will go a long way in building our audience and growing the podcast. Thanks again for everyone who comes along every week. For our newbies, I hope you enjoy this. But to everyone, I do hope you enjoy this conversation with Adam Stone. Uh, Adam, thank you much for joining me here on this frosty what is it autumn morning 
Um, Thanks for having me. Key question to ask you. I know Is you my did... hair really red? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think people will work that out from uh, from the photos. But looking at uh, your regional level gymnastics in Chicago. How do you know about this? Are you are you still <laughs> jumping on the rings? No. Okay. I don't even own a pair of rings anymore. Really? I got quite upset when I quit gymnastics and my parents wouldn't even put rings on the tree outside. Why'd you quit? Uh, I was 12 and I was doing three hours a day, five days a week. God damn. And it was just a little bit too much for me. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I enjoyed it. In the last, I don't know, six to 12 months, I've become obsessed with gymnastic rings. Um, I've got a pair, you can buy them now where you can pretty much just chuck them over everything. I go down to like Fitzroy Gardens, throw it over a tree, tie them up and just start like doing it. People just start looking at me like, who the fuck is this? This weird- is Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> who is this weirdo using uh, rings in the middle of the park? But yeah, it's, um, I love it. I think it, you can get an amazing exercise, movement, everything out of using gymnastics rings. And it sort of shows you how weak you can really be, you know? How weak you can really be or how strong you, you wish you could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mentioned about your childhood. In a previous interview, you spoke about your first entrepreneurial activity being the sale of BB guns on eBay. Mm. Um, what's your first memory of sort of idealizing entrepreneurship? Like when did the archetype come into your head, do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure if I ever really idealized it. I always did it as a selfish thing. I don't know why, mm. especially from a young age, why I was so uh, worked up about being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it was just something about being creative and it was a way for me as a 12-year-old to be creative in my own way because I can't draw. And I, I know, as you said, I was a gymnast, so I liked the idea of succeeding at something that you can work really hard for. <laughs> so I think it just it was just an extension of those two weird natures or features about me, Yeah. I would say. I'm not sure if I really looked up to any entrepreneurs until I was maybe... 17 when I actually found out that I was an entrepreneur. Who was the person that you looked up to? When I was 17 or when I was 12? When you were 17. That's a good question. Probably like Richard Branson or something. Right. Because I just liked his idea of having so many different projects and making them work on such a massive scale (laughs) and somehow managing all these people and making all these companies succeed. Mm. I still haven't read his book. (laughs) (laughs) That would probably answer some of the questions, but I was always a bit inspired. Yeah. By that, until I learned the idea of focus. And now I just can't figure out how he managed to do what he did. Yeah. How did it evolve from, like, where did you go from BB Guns to there was an e-commerce business there? Mm. Was that the same thing or were you selling different products? Selling different products because BB Guns aren't legal in Australia. And when we moved back to Australia, I had to sell all the inventory. (laughs) So um, that's when I started my next business, which was in the mobile phone unlocking space. Uh Uh-huh. So if you're trying to move providers or move your phone overseas or sell them, you could go through us. Okay. Very interesting. Now, your dad, he, uh, he's definitely a loud figure, at least on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, you had a quote in one of your interviews. I think it was, they say the thing about being an entrepreneur is you get to choose which 80 hours you work in a week. I'm just interested, does that come from your father at all? Um, certainly not now. Um, I think Americans have this mentality where they're most proud of how hard they work. Mm. I think what I got from my dad, and I'm not necessarily sure why, he was working pretty hard. 
and my mum too, you know, hard work is very important, but it's more to, to achieve your goal rather than trying to prove yourself through your hard work. Mm. So I definitely don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any inclination or want to work hard. Yeah. But I do work hard to achieve a goal. What impact do you think your dad had on your own entrepreneurial journey? Because he spoke a lot about trying to not so much step back, but not be overbearing. Yeah, he was there. He is there every time I need him for something. So for advice, especially, I would say, because he's kind of been there, done that on a scale that I haven't. Uh, so it's good to have, like, as a mentor, mm. you know, someone who really gets it and, and gets you from a personal perspective as well. I was probably inspired by him. That would be my inspiration from, like, the age of 12 because I would listen to his business phone calls and just be intrigued by them, to be <laughs> honest. I don't know why. Um, but I was always surrounded by business and that sort of thing, and I always wanted to do things for myself and see w- what I could get out of it. So he never pressured me in any way, but he was there if I had a question. Right. He, he helped me definitely in ways like supporting me and where I couldn't have my own eBay account, he would actually open, open one up. So if he didn't do that, then I would have been held back for s- until I was 18. Yeah, I was relying on them for bank accounts until I was 18. Really? That's interesting. So I had to have their support, meaning my parents' support, but they never pressured me on the other hand. Yeah. Why do you think he wasn't like the traditional overbearing entrepreneur telling you all the things you had to do? Probably because he knew how hard it was. Yeah. <laughs> and how long things can take. <laughs> and I really have discovered I don't think there's any rush when you're being an entrepreneur. Mm. I think if you're working on a big grand vision, these things inherently take a lot of time. Yeah. If you're working on a small side hustle, on the other hand, you can probably do that while you're working. So I, I kind of like the idea of having two things going at once, be it study and, and having a business or working and having a business. It just makes life a little bit more exciting without losing the structure and routine that I think you need, at least in the beginning. Right. Yeah. With the business, like, I feel like a lot of people are, are definitely in a rush to get things done. So like, what, what has taught you that you don't need to rush the like the massive expansion of Speedlancer, you know, like why why aren't you out there raising millions of dollars of capital constantly and constantly growing and like what what in your head makes you believe that it's not the ultimate thing that you should be doing? It's interesting you ask that because that's something that people don't see a lot of is the hustle behind the scenes. Hmm. So when you're working on a startup, I think high growth is the number one goal, and you have to hustle and you have to. You have to grow on a you know weekly basis and make the growth everything. And then you, if you have a big vision, you need to do what's right for the company. And sometimes that does involve raising. And for us, you know, we've got a big vision, so we are going out there and raising money. Whether or not we succeed at that is a different question. Mm. Um, but certainly, I've done you know multiple trips around the world, and you know we have raised some money. And in terms of raising the next rounds, that will probably be be in our trajectory for this company. With my last business, it was totally bootstrapped. But I think what I was more saying before was even if you are hustling, you can hustle as hard as you want, but it doesn't mean things will happen. Right. So with fundraising, for example, you can fundraise as hard as you want. You can meet every VC, but if your business just isn't ready for it, you're not going to be able to raise. And I think to get a business ready for it, that's that sometimes takes a lot of time to happen. Mm. And you have to be willing to grind and do the slog and keep maintaining your vision throughout the whole process. So it's more that things inherently can take a lot of time. Even yeah. if you do raise money, you're probably building a business for years. You know, the, the, I think it's important to, to find the right business, to find the right team, to find 
the right cogs, um, put them in place before you go out and do the next big thing. How do you maintain that in your head? Like, how do you stop yourself from jumping ahead of things? Like, there was a really interesting point you mentioned in another interview where you said, ultimately, when you start out, maybe hiring your first staff isn't the best thing. You should maybe look at freelancers to help you grow it. Mm. Because if you think about it, your first hires could kill the business, um, particularly if they're bad hires. So I'm just interested, how do you constantly remind yourself look this is a 10-year process this is a 20-year thing yeah i think making a bad hire is a really bad decision <clears throat> but if they are freelancers you have the the aspect of you don't have to sit next to them <laughs> you know you don't have to tolerate them on every level they don't have to be a perfect cultural fit especially if you have the milestones and the goals set up in the right ways i think that's where freelancers can be really uh, empowering you know from a cost level but also just speed of hiring mm. and um I mean, people talk about risk of hiring freelancers, like they'll steal your code of the developers. But if you know that you're going to lose everything, then you kind of become a little bit more selective with what you give them. <laughs> and therefore, you don't care if they actually run off with the material or the knowledge or whatever it is. If you can get around that fact and use them for processes or outcomes-based work, um, and that's a lot of what we focus on at Speedlancer, then I think you can leverage people that you wouldn't be able to hire normally. But if they're in-house and, you know, especially if they're sitting next to you or they're working with you full-time and you want them to become a core part of your team, that's where you have to be really careful with who you hire. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing and I, I just I found it very, very interesting. Um, <laughs> what's What do you think is a lesson that either of your parents have taught you that stuck with you today? It might be something that they've said directly or you've just noticed indirectly? Um, I think the importance of being able to make a sacrifice um, okay. to do what you want to do. So we moved to the US when I was nine from Melbourne, my sister when she was seven. Um, and we moved back when I was 14 and she was 12. You know, mm. These are pretty critical years of an upbringing. And mum, you know, pretty comfortable home and dad didn't even know if this thing would be successful. I mean, you're uprooting a whole family for an indefinite period of time when your whole support network you know, came from a pretty simple kind of middle-class family. Mm. And just the willingness to, to move and make sacrifices and say sorry to everyone else is quite an interesting learning. And I think they're a bit scared that it's going to come back to bite with me. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> what did that feel like to you at the time when you were nine? Could you Can you remember what your mindset was like during the move? I remember when my parents told me that we were moving. I was a bit confused, excited, nervous. Um, <laughs> even a day before we moved, we didn't even have our visas yet. So it was like all this question oh mark God. kind of thing, saying goodbye to friends. It's a, it's a, it's a far move, especially for a kid, or, I mean, for anyone. Um, when, we, when we got there, you know, it was actually quite exciting because it taught me how to be able to make new friends um, and be able to adapt to new situations teaches you to be much more outgoing as a person than you ever thought you could be. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, I've been traveling in the last year and that's something I've been, I think it's sort of within me now. I sort of thrive in that sort of environment of adversity where you have to go to a startup event and not, not know anyone and then walk out meeting three people and then partying with them two days later <laughs> and sometimes traveling with them or meeting them again overseas and then becoming really good friends. I mean, that happens all the time. So when I got back to Melbourne about a month ago, I went to a, few, a couple of startup events and it was actually really refresh, refreshing. Um, I didn't remember that I would actually know people at these events. 
uh-huh. but I knew like four or five of them and they were sort of coming to me as friends do. Um, and that was really relaxing actually. So <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that you don't always need to be hustling and, you know, up, up there with your mind. And <laughs> yeah. A lot of those events are just good for community, you know? Like I feel like a lot of people go to those events and they, they feel like they have to there has to be an outcome of some kind financially. Mm-hmm. It's like when we first started out with this podcast, I, did, I didn't think there would be some sort of financial outcome from it. But, you know, started a new job because of it, have new services that we're providing to people because of it. I feel like a lot of when you do those sort of things, it can be quite valuable For sure, to you as an individual. That's the whole aspect of, you know, luck serendipity you kind of have to make your own luck and put yourself out there and when you do open yourself up to new situations it sounds corny but things start to come to you yeah like with speedlancer i honestly didn't think anything would come of it i started it as a side project in uni i had my other business and i wanted to really get into the startup scene um in other words i wanted to meet people and have an excuse to network and have something to pitch to people because i didn't know what would happen that is all i wanted out of speedlancer <laughs> so wherever i am now i keep reminding myself oh wow like you know there's there's all this way that i wanted to go and how much bigger it could be but then i look back and think oh you know pretty humble beginnings in, <laughs> in terms of what i thought would come out of it so i've never started anything with the goal of it becoming something that's really interesting it's funny you mentioned about like the adversity as a kid i remember when I mean, yours is way more extreme, but uh, I moved schools when I was like 10 and I just remember thinking like, this is like a crazy thing to me, um, particularly at that age. And um, yeah, it's really interesting how it sort of normalizes change in you when you do it at an early age Mm -hmm. Um, and you sort of start to adapt to environments of change, which I think in our world now is more, more important than it would have been, say, 50, 60 years ago. Especially um, because the whole world is changing every minute on your phone. Yeah. You look at Twitter and, you know, you can read one thing one minute and a second later you see someone's reply and the whole the whole thing has changed, but it's like a whole distraction that's happening. Yeah. And that could be quite off-putting yeah, to some people in a weird way. <laughs> I was looking, speaking of Twitter, I was looking through your Twitter, which I love to do. Um, <laughs> to, Twitter to get, stalk. Yeah, to get an idea of the individual. And i got to say that this... There was a series I was mesmerized by that you shared. There's some other really interesting piece of content as well, but particularly the uh, the Middle Ground series by... Um, it's a YouTube channel called Jubilee, and they sit people down based on, mm. like, their differences. We've now got, like, a new question that we're going to implement for every guest each time we interview them. But for, for you, I want to know, what frustrates you that society is not able to find Middle Ground on? Um, there's a few things. (laughs) I think being open versus being closed in your personality. Uh A lot of people are so closed off in their ways and not willing to to think outside the box um, or take the opportunities that they knew they've always wanted to do. Like if they know they want to do something and they're not doing anything with it, that's quite odd to me because I think it's a pretty awesome opportunity to know what you want to do. Mm. A lot of people have no idea what they want to do. Um, occasionally you know i'll do an exciting thing like traveling for a year and like i've just come back and not know like there's a kind of a void that i feel if i had known what i wanted to do then i would go do it and that would satisfy that curiosity but some people are too closed off to to even realize that they can do what they want to do yeah <laughs> um that would be one of them another one in more business related is um with speedlance and this this is this kind of falls under the bracket of knowing your biases when you run a business. So one of my biases with Speedlancer was 
thinking that everyone knew how to use freelancers and people just don't and that kind of pisses me off so you've got these on the one hand some businesses that do not use any freelancers whatsoever and I think that's ridiculous because I can spot 10 or so different processes where they could seriously leverage them and it would fix a bunch of their business problems and then you've got the other side of the, the market who who uses freelancers and then they're not achieving as much as they want to um, so that's kind of a business middle ground that just pisses me off all the time is yeah. people who don't know how to operationalize and systemize their business and leverage what's out there that's a lot of people though yeah it's <laughs> a, a lot of people who don't know how to do that but that's a very micro <laughs> micro example yeah no i like that that's really good i think for anyone we'll obviously link this in the show notes but it's a really really good series to go watch um i think this channel also has something um they sit two individual downs two individuals down that are closely related to each other or their partners or whatever and they they just spike them with uh, these interesting questions i quite liked it mm. um your first and it seems only true job was working at mcdonald's as a teenager mm. what did working at maccas teach you about being an entrepreneur <laughs> i remember in my first interview with them <laughs> my friend unfortunately got rejected because he was 14 years old in nine months which is the cutoff, but I think they wanted someone who's 15. Okay. And I had just turned 15. We were planning on applying together. Um, I had the interview the day after him and he got rejected as soon as I had my interview, unfortunately. Um, but the question was, so ha- explain an example where you've interacted with a customer. And they were like asking this to a 15-year-old. And I was like, oh, I had this eBay business. I've actually got this phone and unlocking website. You know, we've had a few thousand customers. I can like, what kind of example do you want? And the lady was like, oh, we've never had someone with a business before apply to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> this is quite funny. Um, but what did I learn uh, from a business perspective? I think, you know, an example of hard work and where people come from. When I, when I started my first eBay business, one of my first products was selling email addresses on eBay. Okay. So I had like buy PS3 at gmail.com or buy iPhone at gmail.com. <laughs> and we put a big disclaimer at the top saying, or I did, um, saying, um, this is not the latest iPhone, which hasn't even been released yet, or not the latest PlayStation. This is just the email address to help you sell PlayStations. Right. And I remember selling a few of those for 150 bucks each. And my mum was like, this seems too easy for a 12 or 11-year-old to make $150 in a pop without having to do anything for it. <laughs> so I think my mum was sort of nervous that I would forget how hard work actually happened. Uh, so she wanted you to go... She liked the idea of me, me applying for, for Maccas. So I did it um, and I remember I hated it. She yeah, didn't it's want horrendous. To go and I would complain to my mum. I'd be like, I don't want to go. Why do I have to do this? It was like all my choice. Right? It was just for, for some money. Um, and my mum said, no, you're going and shut up. <laughs> I was like, why are you so mean? <laughs> Looking back on it, I realised, oh, yeah, it's actually teaching me what work is. What's, um, <laughs> what Maccas? Elstonwick. Elstie Maccas. Wow. Yeah. That's a brutal, brutal way to go about it. I remember I worked at uh, Brighton Hungry Jacks. Yeah. Burger uh, King in the US. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, What section did you work on? Uh, front. Front. Yeah. Okay. I refused to touch the food. Oh, man. That will turn you off, that sort of stuff, forever. Yeah. I never ate Maccas before <laughs> and now I eat it. <laughs> I don't know why. Did you ever see how they make the food? I did. Okay. It all looked clean and legit. Yeah, I, maybe Mac is better than Hungry Jack. I just I worked on the broiler. Uh-huh. Yeah, I I have 
vivid memories of taking these little... See, people believe that they're these wonderfully fried patties of meat mm. that are like fresh in the fridge, but they're just frozen cakes. Freshly taken out of the freezer. <laughs> and you, you literally put them three in a row on this like conveyor belt and it cooks it and it comes out like looking like fresh... Fresh meat. It's it's something Technology. else. Technology, man. Yeah. Have you ever eaten an Impossible Burger in the US? No. It's a fully vegetarian or vegan burger. And they add heme in it, which is like the blood thing. Wow. But it's like vegetable blood. Okay. <laughs> Somehow. Impossible Burger. Impossible Burger. And I would say I'm a fully carnivore. I would say it tastes 90% like a regular burger. Interesting. Yeah. But I... I don't think it's any healthier. I think it's much less healthy. It's got like four times the salt of a regular burger, just as much saturated fat. So you'd only eat it if you are vegetarian, but it might be the future. It's probably loaded with non-complex carbs as well. Probably, yeah. So it's just lots of refined shit. Yes. Probably. Probably full of sugar to make it taste good. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. Um, I, You know, the other day you, you mentioned that it actually tastes like a burger. I discovered the other day that I reckon the smell of chicken and leek soup or chicken leek pie is actually the leek, not the chicken. Like what we think in that chicken stocky smell. That's a good hack. Is actually leek. Mm. I discovered that. It's probably the other day. fake leek now. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the key ingredient, they've definitely found a way to fake it. <laughs> um, it's really, really interesting. I, I had no idea. That sort of umami smell is definitely the leek. Um, now, going to your early e-commerce business. No, no, I want to stay on the lead. <laughs> it's it's good shit. I recommend it. Um, now, your first e-commerce business seemed to teach you a lot about matching business models with customer acquisition models. And this is probably more relevant in hindsight as you got into Speedlancer. It's my favorite question. Um, Where did you get that question from? Uh, what do you mean? It's something I talk a bit about I really like, yeah i just i've read and watched everything that you've ever done maybe okay. maybe it's like instilled in my brain no it's good what are it the took mo- me a long time to realize that this was a fundamental question so yeah that's why it definitely is i think a lot of people miss this it's product there's product market fit. i'm doing a talk tonight and actually on one of my slides I, i'm talking about product market fit versus pricing distribution model fit mm. and i think a lot of people don't consider that pricing and distribution actually correlate in some way but we'll get to that yeah like i, I think that for example, uh, as you mentioned in your in that interview about what were you doing? You were selling like um, an average unit for like fifty dollars, but you were actively calling people up. That is not a good fit, and that's sort of not what really deal. stands out to me mm. is the le- the the pricing dictates the way that you distribute the product. In my mind, um, I would come from the reverse. Okay, most people know how they're distributing the the product already i'm assuming you're a month into the journey right and you've kind of figured out what is definitely not working and what is working and assuming your product is kind of flexible like you're in the early mvp stages you don't know if it's going to be high touch or low touch for example you don't know if it's going to be services or a product or you don't know if it's going to be a marketplace or a SaaS, um e-commerce or a marketplace so all of these models are kind of flexible but you still have that vision of what you want to do that's where i'm assuming mm. um that's where I come at this at this question from. And I think that's a very beautiful time in the formation of a company where you can adapt in some ways. And I think, in my opinion, where you really want to be focused on adapting is the two pegs, which is distribution and then pricing models and making sure those collide. Yeah. So what I mean is um, with my last business, which was the e-commerce one, I learned a 
shit ton in that business. We had 140,000 paying customers um, and all through SEO, search engine traffic. So we had 300,000 hits a month coming and looking for our product on the site. So I learned, well, I, I gotten kind of lucky in that because I didn't have to think about pricing and distribution. Hmm. It was a one price product. The distribution was kind of there. I mean, we had to do a lot of SEO optimization, but as soon as we did that, we were doubling every three months. Okay. For a good couple, few years, I would say. And then I had gotten to Speedlancer and just assumed that the same thing would happen. So that's where the pricing actually came from. $50 was actually quite similar to the $50 price point of the unlocking product or between 10 and 50 bucks for that. And that was exactly the pricing range of Speedlancer when we started out, like 15 to $50. Um, and I just assumed, okay, you know, we got into 150 sales a day in that business. It would be much easier to get to that level with Speedlancer because people actually use it all the time. So if they use it once and they come back within two weeks, then they'll come back within a week and they'll use us every week forever. That was kind of my plan in my head. And for 150 customers, sorry, 150 sales a day, um, I'm not going to do the maths, but say, you know, a thousand sales a week, you know, divide that between everyone repeating every week, you know, you probably need less than a thousand customers, mm-hmm. especially over time, right? Like eventually you wouldn't need to acquire any new customers because um, you'd so have a thousand maintain, yeah. orders a week automatically coming through. Yeah. Um, versus the unlocking site where we had this distribution channel and people were coming in, but they would never repeat, but that didn't matter because we were getting 300,000 people a month who wanted the product anyway. And yeah. that wasn't dipping. Um, so with Speedlancer, I slowly realized, like when I say slowly, I mean very slowly realized um, over the course of 500 startups that actually more than that, probably a year after 500 startups in 2015, that we had this unique opportunity because clients were asking for um, a lot more than just a task. So they always wanted bigger work done, but we had this task framework where, we would, where we'd achieved five to 60 minutes task acceptance time. So we had amazing liquidity on the supply side meaning um, if you submit a task and it's done within a few hours, um, you know, we could then start to think about stringing them together in a campaign. So customers were asking us for PR campaigns and content marketing campaigns and infographics where we do the research, the design and, and the writing of a blog post. Customers were actually asking for all of these. All of the bundles that you see on the site have actually been requested in some way by, by actual customers. Mm. So we started doing those manually and we would just string the task together in a certain order and then what we did was, you know, we raised some money and automated that whole process. So we're first to market with this, patent pending, that sort of thing, on this bundle software where we can actually route tasks to certain freelance in a certain order. They can pass off tasks. And what that forms is what we call a bundle. And those bundles are actually about between half a dozen to a dozen tasks all strung together. So that got our cart value from $50 to about $300 to $500 within the course of a year. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, okay, it's still not matching our distribution model because we were doing cold email as a strategy, getting some inbound leads, but not really getting SEO organic traffic because people don't really look for freelancers in a real business setting online necessarily. I mean, SEO might become a channel for us, but at least right now we do a lot of outbound and just taking inbound leads, which forms the majority of our revenue. Um, and then I, and then it occurred to me, okay, if we're doing that as the distribution model, and we're doing sales, it doesn't make sense to hop on the phone for a $500 sale no. and just hope they'll come back. This whole hope they come back thing is not a legitimate thing. People loved our product. We have 94% rating on every single task, um, which is a four out of five or above for 94% of people, which is pretty critical. Um, but for some reason, people just don't come back as often as if you do a recurring revenue model where they automatically come back. 
So that's when we got into recurring revenue. And that's when our business finally changed after like two and a bit years, I would say, two and a half years. Yeah. And the critical thing looking back on it was no, we knew what the distribution channel was, right? Cold email and inbound leads. There are other distribution channels that we want to try, like paid acquisition and SEO, but those would have taken too too long and we didn't have the funds to be able to afford to make those experiments work. Yeah. And early indications were that it would require a lot of effort for us to get there. But we had the beauty that we had one or two channels that were already working, inbound and outbound. So my advice for entrepreneurs, especially when starting out, would be know what those one or two channels are. It only needs to be one or two, even if it's just inbound or even if it's just through networking events. Everyone has people asking for their product. But if the business isn't succeeding, there's probably a problem with the product and the market fit. But then outside of that, you've got the distribution model and the pricing model that need to fit as well. Completely agree. I think it's something that we're working out ourselves as well. And I, I feel like a lot of people don't test their business model as it grows and then how, like particularly looking at margins, they forget about a lot of, I think the, in my opinion, going back to what you were saying, working out your product and then the distribution afterwards for me makes a lot of sense because you can actually work out then and there whether it's going to work or not. Um, I think, yeah, the SaaS model is really interesting. So you basically went from one-off tasks, mm-hmm. making it easy to use freelancers, to bundling tasks, so increasing your average unit, uh, average sale um, By about 10x, amount, 10 times. To a recurring revenue form. And that got us another 10 times average sale size. Yeah. And I think that's also just the beginning. And so how, how do you... We could f- probably 10x it again, in other words. Yeah. As in going up market if we wanted to. Mm. How did you incentivize that? Was it simply the price? Uh, what do you mean incentivize? You know, like how do you incentivize someone from going from one-off to a bundle to being a regular user? The bombshell is each of these things added more value to them. Mm. And that's exactly what the customers already wanted. How did it add more? It just took me two years to, fi- to figure out that fact. The traditional way that people like to work with freelancers is by having a relationship with people. And even yesterday I was talking to a lead and, you know, they didn't know we had this subscription product and they said, oh, we're actually looking for a long-term solution. Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like we can be a long-term solution. We've actually got this subscription model and you ended up liking that. So it took me a long time to figure out that, you know, people didn't want tasks because that was just a tool. I mean, that still forms a, a significant percentage of our revenues, um, but bundles actually what people want because they want, um, you know, their deck design. They don't just want one screen designed Mm. Uh, and they want to see multiple versions. So that's what we have in the deck bundle. You know, you can choose from two or three designs. Then we design uh, the first couple of pages and iterate on that. And then we design the whole deck in, um, we, we put the Photoshop file on the PowerPoint. So we've kind of realized what customers actually want. And then we moved to subscription because it made it easier to sell. We didn't even put it on the website for about six months, but that was the majority of our sales was this subscription product. Mm. We promised a concierge. We basically brought our support team onto Slack and added additional guarantees like task replacement guarantees and which was, customers wanted anyway. Was that only for the subscription yes. model? Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as we did that, sales just became so much easier because it was aligned with how customers are used to dealing with freelancers anyway. Mm. So, yeah, that's how we achieved... Um, at least the product market fit that we have now. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. it's really interesting. So yeah, critically, it made sales much easier. Yeah, I think that's the thing that we 
worked out. Like, so we, our businesses are sort of similar, except that we're, our, ours is way more specialized and offers different things that are focused on that niche. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still haven't launched the service, but we've learned a lot from having the two clients and testing things out with them. Uh, the biggest thing as well in these sort of businesses, you don't want to have to be chasing people for money. Like that's one of the biggest things that, mm. that I realized. And the recurring revenue for me, it's, you know, how do you how do you incentivize it without ruining the cost? Do you know what I mean? Like how, how do you incentivize it? Because you go look at like SaaS products and they all offer like you pay for a month, you get 16% discount, you pay for uh, quarterly, you get X amount of discount. Yeah, gotcha. And that's um, sort of what the, the buying expectations mm. of people can be in that mindset. Mm. So It's kind of something that we're thinking about as well because I don't want to discount. Um, discounting reduces the yeah. value. Yeah. I mean, we would discount if it's, if it's a 12-month lock-in, for example. Um, wouldn't be too much, but if clients really want to do that, we could do that. Um, i trying to think what other incentives we offer. I mean, for us, it's like month-to-month plan at least for now because I want people to stay with us because they really like the service. Mm. I come from a background of not having done recurring revenue before so I'm still a bit uneasy about locking people into something that they don't really want. Mm. So that's why it's month to month I cancel any time and credits roll over until you cancel. Yeah. So we're pretty fair with the rollover policy as well. I don't know. We're not in this to screw anyone over. It's, it's, it's more to add convenience to them and to make revenues more predictable for us so we can add better service on the other end. Yeah. I'm trying to think what other incentives we provide. Is that your question? Like what the incentives to provide for lock-ins? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think just high-touch service. I I think the beauty of of offering a service is you can offer it under your terms in some ways as long as you're transparent with it. You know, if if you're not willing to run this business in a non-recurring fashion, then okay, that's just the way the service is. Yeah, no, I think I think you've really articulated it. like the one-off tasks. Like it's it's good and it's handy depending on what you want to do. The bundles work because you're grouping a whole bunch of tasks that are not included in the normal service. I'm guessing, and then the subscription you're offering that extra level with having someone there to actively manage what what they're doing. Yeah, sure. So bundles are its own product. Yeah. Um, so yeah. You, I mean, the other option is you can bundle things yourself. You know, order one task, then order the next one, then order the next one. Mm. We don't really charge a premium for the bundling. Um, it's just we like it because it encourages people to order more and they like it because it adds more value. So we find customers like to order processes instead of just a one-off task. Yeah. Now, if you were, I mean, it's been noted on many interviews as the Uber of freelancing. How do you see your service? What's sort of the explain like I'm five version that you give to people? Uber freelancing came from Inc.com. The, the journalist was like, this is back in 2015. He's like, what do you think about uh, the Uber freelancing as the running title? I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> Wouldn't say no to that. <laughs> um, yeah, we're actually the Tinder for the Uber for for the Craigslist. <laughs> no. Um, explain like I'm five. All right, so you're a company. You want to hire someone. You have to go through a whole recruiting process so that you manage the person, so that you train them, and finally maybe get the work done if that person is good. With Speedlancer, we're focused on outcomes-based processes. So instead of hiring that person, you come to us, pick that process, and then we worry about the execution. But it's fully transparent. You still can talk to the freelancers directly. We're not charging like agency margins, 
and the actual process is a lot more transparent. So you know exactly what's happening and when, and therefore it's a lot faster because it's fully automated. Hmm. That's probably the explain like I'm at least 12 version. <laughs> no, that, that makes total sense. I think um, people should really go check this website out. I found it fascinating. For me, when I look at it, it sort of looks like you've created an e-commerce version of services. Exactly. And that's sort of what you're aiming to achieve, right? Yeah. When you were progressing, you know, through this whole process, you were originally matching people. We spoke about the task, the bundles, the subscription with concierge. How did you go through... I mean, I'm just so fascinated by your algorithm and the system and the briefing and all that sort of stuff. How did you simplify that? Because there's one thing to offer it to a customer. How did you offer a level of customization without ruining your processes? Customization is extremely important in our space. You know, if we can't allow customization at scale, then it sort of doesn't work. Yeah. Because not everyone wants the same thing. So with our bundles, we can skip a task at any time. We can add a new task either manually or integrate into the bundle automatically. That's sort of an operational choice from our perspective. We can build new bundles. So if a client comes to us, you know, we want an animation video, great, we'll, build, we'll pay for it, we'll build it, and now we've got an animation product on our website. Pretty stock standard, simple, um, but pretty powerful because nobody's able to, been able to do this before mm. on a microprocessor's kind of level. I mean, that would be the, the, main, the main thing. With, in terms of the briefing, um, clients always enter their brief. That's the hardest part. So that's something that we it haven't is. gotten right to yeah. date, is completely right, is how to get clients to be able to brief their freelancers. But that's the eternal challenge. Yeah, I think there are ways that we can leverage technology maybe to make it easier. I'm sort of inspired by companies like 99designs who do that in, in, in an interesting way relating to the products that they offer. Mm. Um, where, for example, if you're looking for a logo, you can choose what sort of theme you want in the logo. If you want it colourful or black and white, if you want it round corners or edgy corners, if you want it professional or fun. Uh, and I okay. quite like that approach because, yeah. you know, for all of our bundles, we can we could do that. Even for our sales development bundle, which is um, one of the more expensive ones where we do the lead generation, the lead enrichment, the email writing, the email sending, and then following up. Like we actually have a sales development rep monitoring the inbox every day and nurturing these people into, cold, uh, sorry, into warm leads and booking via Calendly. It's actually one of the more powerful ones that we offer. Um, but even with something like that, you could picture like that 99designs type model where it's like, okay, what kind of leads are you looking for? And we just have a stock standard questionnaire in addition to an empty brief form. Yeah. But we already do ask some questions like what kind of leads are you looking for or what kind of content are you trying to write yeah. who's the audience? But that's kind of the biggest challenge. Yeah, it is. A, it's a massive challenge. Mm. Um, it's a fun one though. Yeah. Now, how did you go about scaling the recruitment process and what does it involve um i don't think recruitment is that hard i think you can knock out with some 90 percent level of accuracy kind of, kind of anyone can do it mm. um looking at their online ratings look at their portfolios look at their resumes you know if, if you're looking for a writer and a spell check shows you spelling errors everywhere you can probably knock out <laughs> those people but it, but are you like going onto other platforms to hire people and get them to say hey use our platform as well or do you literally have your own platform and you're feeding people into that yeah we've got our own platform 500 curator freelancers we've got a few thousand in our queue they sort of apply just organically um we don't need that many at the moment um That's and insane. also like we're on a, an argentinian national newspaper called la nacion 
and um, they sent us thousands and thousands and thousands of hits of traffic. Wow. I think like 30,000 in one day of just freelancers looking to apply. So much so that we had to like add a bar at the top of the site, which says, if you're a freelancer, do not sign up. And I did it in Spanish. <laughs> I was like, do not sign up as a buyer, you know, sign up, uh, sign up through this link to apply. Wow. And we don't actually like look at the applicant pages, but like you can kind of get freelancers from anywhere. The, the challenge, the fun part is the curation and that's something that we do pretty well. Yeah, it's, um, it's a tough task and it seems based on the fact that you've got 500 and 1,000 in the pipe, mm. that's uh But our 500 are all really staggeringly amazing. Yeah. I'm not sure if I said it earlier, but like Inc.com, The Guardian, Huffington Post, Oprah Winfrey's Network, Bloomberg. Like I did not expect this sort of quality when we started at 15 to $50 as that price range. Wow. <laughs> I thought we were competing with Fiverr. When we started. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, it just shows you like when people work in economies that aren't, you know, as large as the West, that wages can be quite affordable and the work can be reasonable. You just gotta gotta spend a lot of time to go through them. And I, th- I guess that's why your service offers a lot. Yeah, it's a time aspect. And our whole premise is, you know, the client shouldn't have to go through that recruiting process. So we take that on and then we make these people available on demand to make them reliable and consistent where they would never be reliable and consistent for smaller level clients. Yeah. How does your, how does the corporate staff work? Like you, how many, what are the numbers of staff? What, what are the roles that you think are crucial to your business? Um, keeping them as full-time staff members versus freelancers. In terms of our internals, mm. um, we've got a pretty lean uh, like core team. And then we've got a team of freelancers and our own like bundles and everything that we use pretty heavily Yeah. Uh, for things like content and email campaigns and enrichment and our outbound processes. I think we'll always be leaner than most, than most traditional companies because of that and the way that I've just run businesses before. Mm. Um, and I like to be able to break even or be profitable, at least stop at those points and take a calculated risk from there rather than risking the whole company you know, with some sort of six month runway, it's like, well, what am I going to do in six months time? <laughs> like, I don't understand that. <laughs> I understand that taking mindset. a calculated risk. Okay. We keep running at this level. Then we have a six month or 18 month or 12 month runway. But I think you've got to be really careful with that approach. And I think being able to stop a break even is a nice thing to be able to do and then scale from there. Yeah. So we do have a core team, um, but I tend to be pretty focused as to what tasks those people are going to do yeah what are the roles that they mainly focus on is it marketing or engineering or something else so we've got customer support and ops in sacramento yeah um, we've got sales development in london and also using our like sales development bundle and processes and some other software and then we've got devs in brazil okay they're pretty flexible devs to be honest which is amazing for us yeah <laughs> you know turn them on turn them off but as soon as we're ready to hire full-time touch wood soon then um then they're available for that yeah um we used to have marketing but i think you know over time product changes um people's vision changes um or they're not totally aligned and you know that's fine and that happens um or they look for a change and i think right now we're looking for like performance marketing like growth hacking and that sort of thing um but i'm taking on that role for the moment okay to learn it yourself and just learn about what what's involved with that yeah for us i realized that marketing is everything you know if we can't get the word out there then we don't have a business so if i'm a founder and i'm the only one that actually cares 
you know, let's be realistic, it's probably only the founder that has as much buy-in. Even if someone has a percent or two of equity, that's not quite the same as 70% equity. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. So I think um, the founder has to do things that they don't want to do. And I don't want to do marketing. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to do marketing sometimes. Yeah, you have to learn it. It's one of the things I've um, dealt with myself that you just need to become an exceptional marketer. Yeah, exactly. And I like that, you know, I'm building a product that is helping me do a lot of the things that we need to do. Exactly. I was so that keeps me that. engaged in the product as well. Like every time, you know, in the last three years, things have gotten really tough for us. And I just thought, I, you know, I could just give up. Like, why not? There's nothing holding me to this thing. I'm like, okay, let's try giving up. Next day I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I can't. I just can't because if I want to start a new business, like I was thinking in my head, okay, this, this new business idea, all right, what, what would the first step be? It would be, all right, got to build a website. Like how how am I going to do that? Oh, there's Speedlancer. I'm like, oh, shit. Come back to Speedlancer again. Okay. <laughs> and that's how I got so engaged with the product that I just, I don't think I ever can give up. Yeah. <laughs> you've, um, you've lived remotely quite a lot. What are the issues in running a mobile decentralized business? I'm not sure if there are many issues, to be honest. I, 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 the, the biggest issue is not necessarily cultural fit because I think if people are working for you full-time and you're Skyping with them, you get to know their culture and whether or not they're a fit regardless. Yeah. If it's outcomes-oriented, then you don't need to care about their culture, in my opinion. But the hardest thing, I think, is motivation. Okay. How the hell do you keep people motivated when they're potentially working from home? I have no control over where they work. Not everyone knows that they should be working in a co-working space or what kind of co-working space fits for them or even if a co-working space fits for them. You don't know if they're having a happy personal life. You don't know what their relationship status is. When people are working remotely, it kind of assumes that all of that is, is okay. <laughs> but if people are working from home and they're not happy at home, that's a really big problem and I have no idea how to factor that in. Um, like I encourage co-working and we pay for co-working. I think that's a critical thing. Um, I do Skype calls not to please me because I can manage people purely remotely. Like I, before Slack was around, I used to just do email and I never Skyped my employees in the Philippines like ever. Email was just the way I, I operated. But for them, that can get quite isolating. So I've got to get better and I am getting better at this, you know, managing these people and managing them from an emotional perspective managing from an emotional perspective sounds a bit controlling, but uh, more <laughs> more um, accommodating them and, and understanding them from an emotional perspective. Yeah. Have you read the book uh, Remote? No. Okay. Um, by the guys at Basecamp, it's really interesting. Does it talk about that sort of... Well, so Basecamp and Automatic, the company that runs WordPress, mm. they are probably the most... two of the most notable organizations that operate... Remotely And GitLab, which uh, Telstra just invested in yesterday. Interesting. Mm. GitLab. Yeah. Okay. Um, GitLab is really cool because they have a whole open source manual. So their whole thing is um, like a GitHub style product. So their, their whole thing is open source and they've actually open sourced their whole company process, including um, sick leave <laughs> and how to hire someone overseas, how to manage the visa process, how much to pay. Um, really? All of these policies. And I would just use their thing. Wow. Like as we scale. But yeah, sorry. That's that's really interesting. Um, the book Remote by, I think it was by David Heinemann Hansen, the guy who mm -hmm. created Ruby on Rails, I think. Who my uh, dad met in Chicago. Yes, I heard that. Yeah. The, all about the cars, apparently. Yeah. Um, yeah, they had a really, really interesting book about this sort of stuff. This sort of business model really fascinates me. 
being able to be mobile because I think like yourself, I think this is where work is going. I'm noticing more and more people don't have full-time jobs. They have a multitude of part-time jobs. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, or a part-time job and freelance work. Yeah. And I think on a level that's where, you know, the, the other critical part of our pitch comes in. I talk a lot about the customer end, but from the freelancer end, what we do is super empowering. It's a gap filler for them critically. So we encourage them to, to do these other jobs. And when they don't have these other jobs, we're there to give them free access to small chunks of work that they can just pick up. But what I'm most concerned about is, as I said, the, the, not necessarily culture, but more from an emotional perspective, how this is going to change people because for decades people have been used to working in an office. Mm. Um, and people are taught how to operate a life of living in an office. But when there's little structure, how does that affect people emotionally? And the other thing is like um, insurance. If people get injured what are they going to do? They don't necessarily have a career. They don't necessarily have a brand. And Speed Lancer is, a, I feel as we scale, we've got unique opportunity to help as a, as a gap filler, which provides this sort of insurance, at least short term, mm. um, when people don't have any other work. But it's also an obligation that we have because people can still get injured with us and you know not know what they're, like they, they won't be able to do work with us. Yeah. And yeah, the emotional side of things. So it is quite interesting and i think it's going to cause a lot of problems as well as helping a lot of people yeah just freelancing in general if you could get into freelance or remote work insurance that could be a massive area it's not something that i would i well i don't think that's something that i would want to purely get into i think there are products out there as we scale i mean there might not be it could be something but as we scale i think it's something that you know we have an obligation to sort of start to at least think about and dabble with for our freelancers. Mm. Now, having worked remotely, I mean, how crucial was this to you? Why, why did you decide I want to build a remote style of business as opposed to building a team around you in Melbourne? I don't know if it'll always be remote. Okay. A chunk of what we do will always be remote and a chunk of it will always leverage off our bundles. But bundles don't really feel remote. They feel internal, which is kind of what our goal is at Speedlancer. So the idea is for Speedlancer to fit into the real business environment and if that's internal teams or remote teams, it shouldn't really matter too much. Mm. Um, so I think with our marketing and sales, like in the US where our customers are, product in Australia because of grants um, and then maybe other things based on costs, like you know we might do customer support, pro uh, concierge kind of things in the Philippines for the retail customers and but local customer success for enterprise. Right. So I think we kind of have to be where our customer customers are. And if we're thinking as a global company in terms of global customers, we actually might end up having a distributed team again. But whether or not we have a few different offices is a different question. I'm not sure yet. So we're kind of distributed at the moment just because that's an easy habit for me to fall into. It's where I can hire people uh, on a whim and amazing people. Like the people on our team, like our, our team would be half the quality it is now. Right. If I couldn't hire people Wherever without, in the world. yeah, because I meet someone like Lara, she was a backpacker in Australia um, last year. That's where I met her, and then she started traveling. But she's just started working for us again in London. If I had a strict thing where um, she she had to be in the Australian office, first of all, visas are nonsense. Yeah, that really pisses me off because <laughs> she would, she wants to move to Australia, not by my. Uh, not by my preference, but, you know, that's just, she wants to move to Australia. Um, 
so I think just being open to hiring overseas is something that's empowering for us. Mm. What do you think, what are the decisions that could lead a business down the path of embedding them in a city? Like I'm just thinking about as we progress along this process, what could be the crucial decisions that we make that mean that we struggle to move outside of, say, Melbourne? We as a society or? No, we, we Neural as a business. Is it as simple as hiring when you're running a, a digital style business? So what are the things that would stop you from moving outside of Melbourne? Is that what yeah, stop yeah. you from being able to have a mobile style of business where you could work from anywhere. I, I'm going to say something controversial and say that it's probably if your processes aren't in order. Okay. If you're the type of person that needs someone sitting next to you and watch over them, then you're probably a business that's too reliant on its people. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're relying on them in a healthy way, which is if they quit, is your business going to collapse? Mm. For some reason, that's the way that I always think. But, you know, we can replace employees pretty quickly because everything we do is documented. And if you want to work for us, that's just, I mean, I say it in the first interview, are you okay with documenting everything you do? You know, it just means that we can ex- expand a lot faster. It means you can move to a management position a lot faster because you're not spent trying to train all these people. You mm-hmm. know, you just give them this document and they automatically get trained in a day or two. Um, and then you're there for additional support. So that's kind of my management structure, which means automatically I can hire people overseas right. because it forces you to be more outcomes focused, Yeah, which is what documenting and process oriented companies already do. And are you documenting that on like a wiki or is it just a simple word document? Uh, I think we use Google Drive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But they're like my unlocking site, that was a 66 page instruction manual by the end of a few years. Um, Yeah. So we could expand that. We we did expand that. We had an enterprise customer come in, tell us in Canada. um, We expanded from one to five support reps in a week. (laughs) And it wasn't hard. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was all there. All there. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's so fascinating. How much of the process is handed over? Like where can people make decisions in what they're doing? Oh, people always make decisions, right? Like you have a process and they change a day later. Yeah. Or you've got to adapt. But I think there's some core processes like if you're doing sales development, all right, here's how you log into Gmail. Here's the here's an FAQ of our product. Like it's just more about handover than it is about strict process necessarily. Right. If it's customer support... That's probably a stricter process, to be honest. Okay. I don't like when support reps have to make their own uh, high-level decisions about what cases to refund, what cases not to refund. It's too much. Like, that's a business kind of decision. Yeah. So I think customer support needs to be documented. Yeah. Customer success, maybe not, because that's encouraging people to upsell and they need to adapt really quickly with the customers. But customer support, like purely technical or purely billing or whatever... That's a very easy thing to do, to document. Yeah. Also development, that should all be documented. I'm not sure if we've done such, such a good job from that perspective. Um, but, you know, just having the ability for devs to hand over from one to the other, that's pretty empowering. Yeah, I think it's all really crucial. I, I learned a lot of this stuff from, um, I think Tim Ferriss's book really articulated that in the four-hour work. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, we've got like a handbook that is big. And we don't even do that much at the moment. Yeah. It's already like 26 pages or something like that. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, it's uh, one of those things that I think is really, really useful because like you said, you can hire someone and in a couple of hours, they can be up to speed on not just processes in their area, but processes all over the business. Yep. 
Especially um, like GitLab. You know, if you want to run it fully transparent, then uh, GitLab is a really good example of that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. I'll definitely be checking that out. Um, when it comes to startups, as a young entrepreneur, do you f- how have people judged you? They definitely have assumptions and they'll assume I'm arrogant or cocky just because I know the, the answer to some questions <laughs> or... I mean, people don't often say that. Very rare that someone would, but sometimes, you know, you can kind of see in their eyes that they're a bit dubious when they see you. Although since I've grown a beard, that has reduced, to be honest, <laughs> like dramatically. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as soon as I put my hand up in a, in a room or a situation and I actually say something smart or interesting, people are like, okay, and they forget the age thing was ever a factor. Um, when I was running my business at 16, and that's when I hired my first employee, which was how, how I got into freelancing because I could never hire someone sitting next to me as a 16-year-old when I was studying in high school. Where would I put them even? <laughs> um, they could sit next to me in a lecture maybe. Um, but he, he didn't even know how old I was at the time. We met for the first time two years ago in the Philippines. Was he shocked? He took me out um, with his cousins and stuff and he didn't know how old I was and they were all asking, how old are you? Uh, and I said, I'm in my 20s. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. What, are, what do you think are the biggest mistakes or waste of time in startup land? Particularly for a business in its first two years. This. <laughs> um, I think doing things for the right. I'll, I'll spin it. Doing things for the right reasons is very important. Mm. You know, not doing things for the fame or whatever. Um, that said, I think mental health is important. So things like this are really good for me because it helps me just step out, reflect on where I've come, and it's kind of stimulating and interesting for me. And I would never turn down a speaking opportunity. Um, Ever because you never know what opportunities are going to come out of it. But mm. I'm not out there seeking podcast opportunities and, you know, to be in the next, I don't know, list or whatever. Um, don't want to be the next Gary V? <laughs> no, unless for some reason that was my vision at the time and I yeah. thought that was the best way to achieve the vision. Yeah. So I don't judge Gary V for doing what he's doing. I think he's doing a smart thing in order to, develop, to drive the impact that he wants to do. But I think, you know, if you're trying to run a startup, it's just purely about hustle and grind and you know what you have to do, so go do it. Mm. People people say they don't know what they have to do. Okay, well, then the first step is finding out what you have to do, so go do that. <laughs> okay, I don't know how to find that out. Who do I talk to? Okay, well, now you know your challenge. Who to talk to? Go find people to talk to. How do I do that? Go to a networking event. Yeah. You know, the answer all comes down to meetup.org. <laughs> <laughs> What is the worst advice you see being dispensed in startup land? That you have to hire a million people, that you have to raise a million dollars, that you have to have the perfect product out there before you can sell, that you have to have an MVP. Um, I mean, those two things contrast, but I think sometimes you need to have a product out there before you can sell it, and I've learned that with Speedlancer. Um, that's not to say it has to be an amazing product. You can start this product for three or $400. I wouldn't spend more than that. But putting effort into copy and a bit of design and pricing models, these are all things that aren't necessarily part of the MVP. You have to, but you have to have something to present. Yeah, you have to be to able sell. to test it. But, but test it, but with conviction. Mm. Or at least act as if you're convinced. Yeah. <laughs> If you sold Speedlancer tomorrow, what would you be doing? What would you be working on? I've got no idea at all, <laughs> which is quite scary. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you mentioned that before about what oh, I could just walk away and what else would I be doing. I think that's a good thing though because it just shows that you're not 
you're not finished yet and you've got a lot of heart in it. It is, but if you put a lot of heart into it, you feel like it's everything. Mm. And then I actually tweeted this the other day. There was a there was a really interesting blog post on Inc.com about having uh, the importance of goal setting, but in a really weird way, uh, it, it it suggested that if you ha- if your whole life premise is based on a goal, then the outcome is binary. You either achieve it or you don't. Mm. If you achieve that goal, you'll be upset. What, what next? If you don't achieve that goal you'll be upset because you haven't achieved that goal. And then what next? So goals are kind of a fallacy in a way, unless you have the right goals. And those goals, I think, have to be bigger than whatever you're working on now. So Speed Lancer has to be, you know, we've, we've got a big product vision and that's why I don't have uh, the next thing in mind because I'm kind of hoping that we achieve, keep keep making strides and, you know, achieve multi-million dollars in revenue and have a big impact and it's just exciting for me. Hmm. Um, but if I had to sell it, I don't know what my overarching vision is. You know, it's always been a kind of selfish vision, but in a way that I can still add value to other people as opposed to doing something that harms them, like selling cigarettes. <laughs> what was that piece by Inc.com? Do you remember? It's we'll, on my Twitter. We'll link it, obviously. Yeah, it's, 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 really it's worth reading See if I can pull it up while we talk. It's one of those things that I often struggle with because I feel that I need goals or I need to set out plans towards actioning things on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I find it really, as a, I'm a very conscientious individual, so I need to really map out things. Yeah, we need a goal. We need a North Star. Yeah, you need something. Otherwise, I'm a complete mess. And yes. also, if, if it goes in the calendar and it's not achieved, I'm so conscientious, it almost becomes neurotic. It bugs me. Mm. So, um, it's one of those things that you're constantly trying to manage, I feel. So, this article is um, it's called How to Achieve Your Aspirations Without Losing Yourself in the Process by Michael Schneider. Okay. And Goals Should Drive You, Not Define You is the headline. He was a um, uh, striving to be a professional football player. And after that goal ended or whatever, he got really, I think, depressed. He said he was his... Uh, the goal obsession can also cloud our judgment. By the end of my freshman year in college, I came to the sad realization that what, that I wasn't going to be a professional football player. I stopped playing and shifted my focus to, sco- to school. Little did I know it would be one of the toughest times in my life. I'd been so obsessed that when it all ended, I didn't know how to cope. Quitting threw, threw me into an identity crisis that had me second-guessing my purpose. I had let football define me. At some point, you either achieve what you're working towards or, or it will end. Then what? Life doesn't stop when you reach your aspirations and glory eventually fades. And then he goes into three ways to own your ambitions without letting them define you, Mm. which is don't live from accomplishment to accomplishment, do what you can now, um, and be well-rounded. I think those are a good start. I'm not sure if I totally agree with them, but I agree with the problem of letting goals define you. Yeah. And in my the way I've channeled that in the last few weeks is kind of, trying to find the overarching vision for me yeah and i think it's come down to three things um creativity humans have a drive to create um especially if you are creative by nature which i am i mean my sister's an incredible painter and she can play piano now she just taught herself in a couple of months um but an incredible painter and she just got that out of somewhere um i don't have any of that creativeness but i'm definitely creative in terms of business and thinking 
Um, the second one is connectivity. So helping others in a way, you know, adding value. And the third one, which I've learned recently, I went to a talk by um, a guy named Daniel Brown, who's a PhD from Harvard, Harvard professor of psychology. Um, and he's also co-written two books with the Dalai Lama. So he's got this Tibetan kind of thing. And then he's got this Harvard psychology clinical background. Incredible, incredible man. So I went to a two-day seminar in Adelaide last week. Um, and what I came to there was the importance of getting into a flow state, yeah. which is focus. And that's a state that you and I might be in now. I know I am where everything seems timeless. You're like in the zone. You're being creative, you know, coming up with new things. Um, and those three things combined are kind of in some way a purpose. Yeah, so almost the well, this is the thing that I've worked on is the the purpose or the goal is no longer a thing but an archetype. Mm-hmm. So a sense of being or a sense of um, identity that isn't driven by um, so n- not so much an outcome but just a state of being. Yes, if which that makes is sense. Quite difficult to grapple with and Very have to hard. cope with, but that's something that I've had since moving back to Melbourne mm. and also spending some time in Brisbane as well. You know, and since now I've got a bit of a team, I've got some breathing room. You know, I've got at least an hour a day where I can do what I want with it um, in addition to gym and, you know, doing whatever. Um, But it's something that I haven't been able to do since I was 12. And I think I was doing gymnastics and doing business because I was distracting myself from some sort of anxiety about something. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I, I I think I'm in a privileged situation where I don't have to root my business foundations on on anxiety like my grandparents did as holocaust survivors and like my parents had to do as the the sons and daughters of holocaust survivors i'm this i'm in this third generation where i've been taught to root to root what you want to do in an anxiety but uh, i was speaking to someone yesterday and he said you know you're in a fortunate position where we as humans don't have to root our ambitions in anxiety it can be rooted in as i said creativity this flow state and generosity in helping others yeah i completely agree when you're sort of second third generation of immigrants it's sort of the the work ethic is embodied in anxiety yes it makes you an anxious individual i definitely get that from my dad some people don't have a choice like as immigrants they didn't have a choice no but i think we're fortunate in a way it's okay to have some level of anxiety I think, but, um, you know, if you can be driven in other ways and you can be more chill about it and still get to the same result, sounds better to me. It's a good outcome. Yeah. <laughs> I want to jump into some short, sharp questions to finish this off. What does uh, your morning look like? What's your morning ritual? Oh, lately it's been hell because I've had all these calls with the US. Oh, God. So I have to I have to wake up and, you know, start early, be it 8 o'clock in the morning most days, um, which is not too bad, but... I don't like it very much. <laughs> I would start work at 10.30 if I could. Yeah. Um, so I normally wake up like 7.45 and just take the call from bed. And then I don't eat sometimes till 11 or 12. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've just got back-to-back calls. So that's been the most annoying thing. Uh, so that's my answer for, for the moment. <laughs> and what about the evening? How do you decompress at night? Um, I've tried to get into some reading lately. Okay. Never done that before in my life. Um, but... I, Read when I've got a problem and I want to solve it. Yeah. Um, so if that's a personal thing or a business thing, you know, I'll do some reading. I don't actually get as much time as I would like. I go to gym most days when I can if I don't have like a startup event or a social event to go to. Yeah. I like being social in my spare time because I spend a lot of time working at least by myself because I don't have a team 
surrounding me. Uh-huh. That makes yeah. sense. Uh, if you could do a TED Talk on any area outside of business, what would it be on? Something corny like, you know, uh, do something, I guess, would be, the, <laughs> would be the one. Like, don't just sit there. You know, if, as I said in the beginning, if you've, got, if you've got something that you know you want to do, that's an amazing thing, you know, just go do it and see what happens. Yeah. Um, I think that would be... Hopefully over time I'll have more interesting topics <laughs> to talk about, but that would be the one that comes. Uh, best purchase that's had the most positive impact under $200. There was something that I bought that was a really good $5 spend. I think it was a brownie <laughs> and it was an amazing one. An amazing brownie. Yeah, because I still remember it. Is this... It didn't like, have weed in it. Local here in Melbourne? It was in Byron Bay. Okay, nice. Even more surprising that it didn't have weed in it. <laughs> but no, it's just solid. Like that was... that. There's ways you can spend $5 that are like, okay, I just lost five bucks. Well, there's a way you can spend $5 and it's like, holy crap. You just get so much satisfaction out of that five bucks. It's good. I like that. Uh, what's been the most influential book for you? Something that you had to give to someone. I'm reading one at the moment, which is probably one of the most influential. The Man's Search for Meaning uh-huh. by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Holocaust Survivor. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got that on my recently culled down list, which is on its way from Amazon. So yeah. that's really interesting. I've never been focused on this search for meaning before until the last couple of months, mm. which been been almost an existential thing, <laughs> which is fine. Everyone goes through it. I think it's a normal thing for at least intelligent people to go through. Yeah. And I think that book has been really perspective orienting. Okay. What's been the most insightful travel experience thus far? I've had a lot in the last year. I'm very fortunate. Um, I'd say Berlin. That was an amazing city. And you okay. can just get so much done, but also do so much from a personal level. Yeah. Um, San Francisco is always very insightful, you know, meeting people um, from business and personal perspective. It's an amazing city. Uh, Tel Aviv was interesting because they've got a mix of lifestyle and business. Mm. Like there's no more interesting work-life balance story than Israel has. Yeah. It's and survivalist mentality and story. Yeah. Um, an interesting type of person that place breeds. Um, I'd say Berlin yeah. yeah I like that last question for you if you had a billboard anywhere let's say in Australia uh, where would it be and what would it say I was thinking like a Donald Trump kind of billboard <laughs> <laughs> where would it be in Australia that we said yeah probably like outside my house with like an inspirational quote <laughs> <laughs> something selfish like that or uh, so I don't I don't no, I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. Look, um, I appreciate you doing this, Adam. It's been a pleasure having you here. Um, last request for the audience. Where can they find you? Speed Lancer. Where's the best place to go? Send out a bat signal and I'll normally find it. Okay. <laughs> More times than not. No, uh, Stone Adam on Twitter or the LinkedIn's or uh, speedlancer.com. Yep. Awesome. Look, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening.